guys, what is up? Hopefully you will enjoy this podcast coming up. We had Robert Irving Jr. and Will Brown on the podcast. Uh, Will Brown is a up-and-coming entrepreneur, and he is doing big things in the real estate industry, and not really just the real estate industry, but the really business industry as a whole because he is developing a amazing software that can act as artificial intelligence with customers and and specifically business to business uh, transactions. So hopefully you get you guys get to learn something today and you are able to take something away from this and hopefully maybe do some business with Will. Uh, hopefully you enjoy Robert and uh, thank you Robert for getting Will on here from the Go Abundance group and hopefully you guys love it. So see you on the other side. They say I'm showing out, they say I should be ashamed hey. I don't do it for the clout, bitch, I do it for the game hey. You can walk in any trap, and I bet they know my name yeah. Frank Matthews of the South, put me in the Hall of Fame Add it to my bank account, bitch, and you can keep the fame What's up, guys? This is Jake Carlisle, another episode of the Capital Gains Podcast. Got a good one for you today. It's going to be very, very new information for you, and I think you'll learn a lot. I've got Will Brown on the podcast. Pleasure to have you on here. Hey, Jake. Good to be on. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, Will is a he, he's a younger guy and getting it done, just, just crushing it in the real estate space, and uh, I would love to have him give you guys some insight on what he's doing um, over at Titan AI. And uh, without further ado, I will let him kind of give you all the, the rundown. Awesome. Yeah. So, so I usually jump off with a, a pretty brief, you know, summary of my story, which has been a jam packed last couple of years um, but to go back. I grew up in Northern Virginia on a farm, you know, closest house was miles away. And so I, uh, I got bored very easily and we also had terrible internet out there. And so I tried to play video games as much as I could until I got too frustrated with the lack. School also wasn't very interesting to me. And so rather than being like fully committed to it, I was always looking for opportunities to, you know, make money. I love the entrepreneurial part of being able to, you know, buy and sell and create value, even going back to a lemonade stand. And school just offered none of that. And then I asked my teachers, hey, why am I learning the things I'm learning? And they had no good answers for me and didn't seem to know themselves. They were just like, well, this is just, you know, what the state requires. And I realized there's a possibility here that society has moved past the stage and the age for in which the current education system was invented for, the Industrial Revolution, right? It's the same exact model going back. One of my favorite things is to look at some memes of like, you know, cars in the 1950s and cars today, right? Planes in the 1950s, planes today. And then you look at a school and it's the exact same. There's been no innovation in education, even though society has moved so much faster. All of that accumulated to a lot of frustration for me because I just felt completely out of alignment with, you know, whatever my authentic path was. I didn't know, I didn't have the language to speak it, but I also had nobody in my, you know, near circle or family that I could have entrepreneurial conversations with. And so it created this, this chasm of like between where I, the trajectory I was on versus the trajectory that I felt called to. And like everyone experiences their life, when you're doing the thing that, you know, other people sort of guided you to, but you know, in your heart that you should be doing something different, it kind of eats at you and it eats at you and it eats at you. 
nice thing is how I got introduced to real estate was at 16 years old. My mom actually took me to a three-day real estate investment seminar just to learn more about it, just to be introduced to it. And that planted the seed of all seeds that, you know, lit the light bulb of all light bulbs. It was like, wow, this is possible. And this isn't just possible for me in 30 years. This is possible for me in the next few years. And so I immediately started diving into listening to hundreds of podcasts, reading dozens of books, absolutely taking all my energy and all the frustration and pouring that into learning everything I could about how every aspect of real estate works. No, that's not usually how people get into this space, right? Most people are given a recipe and then they mentor somebody and then they just do that one thing. But why I wanted to avoid that was because I heard time and time again, people on the podcast, like Bigger Pockets, et cetera, that did that. And they were doing the same thing 30 years later. And there was no exponential growth. It was sort of, that was the only thing that they knew. So they fell into it. Whereas I wanted to understand the whole industry as a, as a whole, and then sort of chart my path of, of how I could make an impact, how I could make a difference and how I could do something that was interesting every day. Lo and behold, right, as a 17, 18 year old, I started to realize, you know, I didn't have three things. I had no money. I had like literally $30 in my account because I blew it all on Bitcoin mining equipment in 2013. But that's a different story and a story for another time back when it was there a couple go. hundred dollars a coin. Um, <laughs> did not and ended up losing it all to a scam from one of the exchanges. But, you know, as it goes, multi billion dollar lesson inside of that. However, the other lesson I learned is that I had no experience, right? That was pretty easy to say. And the other one was that I had no network. And so here I am, no money, no network, no experience. What do I do next, right? What do you guys recommend somebody does in that position when they finally come to that existential realization that they, you have none of the things that seems you need to be successful? What does one do? I mean, all, all I really started doing was, was I started educating myself on on the ins and outs of everything. Um, but really I just started meeting people. Like that's, that's the first thing I started doing is going to meet, meeting people, going to meetups and, and reaching out to people and going to lunches. And that introduced me to a private lender and introduced me to a GC. And then, you know, now it's where we are now, but yeah. How did you get, how did you get rolling? Yeah. So I don't know how or why, but I go on long drives when I was listening to these podcasts to like, like out of state RIAs just to, again, meet those people and stay in the conversation. And one day it, it sort of hit me that, wait a second, these people all have money. They all have experience and they all have huge networks, but they're all missing one thing. And what I found that one thing to be was consistent access to off-market deals because you can't necessarily just buy better deals you know the definition of a real estate deal is that it's discounted for market price and you can't just buy a network you can join masterminds but you can't buy relationships you have to build them and just because you have relationships if your relationships are not accessing off-market deals now you have no access to off-market deals and just because you've been doing something for 30 years right does not mean that people are just going to be falling into your lap and i realized that was going to be my end I would be able to serve the people that had it all by building a system and understanding how to actually source those deals. And so that's what I set off doing, right? Now they call it wholesaling. This was back in 2017. Obviously it's blown up a lot since then because the market has sort of exploded, especially over the last five years, but really over the last decade. And I saw that there was an opportunity for me to do the work that no one else was willing to do, to build, a, to build the relationships, to put in the emotional investment into conversation with sellers, to actually be there with people and solve the problems that most people just did not want to do. And I was learning that. I was coming to that. And then high school ended. It was time to go to college. 
And so I applied to a few colleges and because I was not making any money yet, I was like, all right, fine, I'll go to college, but I'll, I'll probably get a drop out. I ended up going to William & Mary for one year. Learned it's exactly what I thought. It's just an extension of high school with more binge drinking. It's much different than it was 20 years ago. Society is much different than it was 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. And so I basically started to skip class and bunker up in the third floor of a library. And that was my first office. That was my first headquarters. And from there, I'd pull my list. I'd chart the path. I'd be able to start doing research and making calls every day until I went to Aria and met my first mentor. Then I started to shadow him around some properties. Again, a skipping class to go actually like set up security systems for him at his properties. And I remember there was another sort of pivotal like moment. And I want to share the story in this detail because this was really my, my beginning is when I was just, you know, when I was just a kid, I mean, I'm still a kid, but when I was a kid that knew nothing, now I'm kidding. I like to think I know at least a couple of things is that, you know, we were demoing the property and I was seeing sunglasses and I was seeing like all this stuff that I could buy and sell. So I was buying and selling stuff at the time. And I was like, you know, Hey, Phil, do you mind if I, you know, take this stuff and I sell it and give you a profit of it? He's like, Hey, if we, if you sell this and make money, I don't care. It's all yours. He's like, I'm going to demo it anyway. And that was mind blowing to me is how are they going to do that? And I realized he was playing a much bigger game than I ever was, was on that property that he was going to flip, right? He was making like $75,000. I was going to make like $150 from the same, you know, from a, you know, a couple hours of work to be able to flip that stuff. And then I said, rather than sticking to what I know, I'm willing to let go of everything that I've ever believed and just mentor and just listen and just learn, because obviously there's a learning curve here and I want to learn how to do that. And that's what got me on the track to saying, look, I'm going to do, go into real estate full time. Awesome. And so how did that going from demoing, I guess is what y'all were doing. And, and you said, Hey, I want to learn this. How did that turn into now you have an, uh, a system that finds off market deals for people uh, based on artificial intelligence? You know, that's a, yeah, that's a, there's a right. big gap there. Yeah, boy. If only I could have warned myself right? If I, I could have sold myself what I was getting into. What I did was I first built a human-based system, right? I was able to hire, you know, artificial intelligences inside of, you know, skin, us, that, you know, artificial intelligence is modeled after the way the brain works. And so I could hire people. And that's exactly what we did. And after the one year of college, I dropped out, you know, partnered with a couple of guys. And we started sourcing a couple of deals per month. After about a year of that, we'd done about a hundred in just one market. And I had learned some, some of the tricks and that most people weren't talking about, right? Most of the gurus don't talk about it. I'm going to talk about lead qualification a lot today because everybody talks about you need to get the phone to ring and then you need to have your buyers. But nobody really talks about how you turn a, a rung, like a ringing phone into a closed contract. Most people don't realize that like 60% of people don't answer the phone on the first time, even investors, and that there's a huge waste and there's just huge amounts of loss in this industry because people don't have the adequate systems in place to actually respond to people when they reach out. The whole name of the game is just got to get leads, got to get leads, got to get leads. And once you finally get leads, you're only so focused and you've only been trained on just getting more leads. You don't actually look at how can you increase your conversions. So what we like to say is, you know, getting leads is the easy part, right? You, you swipe a credit card, you send out some mail to a, a list of absentee owners. Getting conversions, that's the hard part. And so what I learned was that I was starting to hit a wall and I was starting to spin my wheels trying to train people on how to talk to sellers because I had a couple thousand conversations under my belt. I had the best practice, but they came in more or less every single time with a blank slate. And the problem with that 
was they could only have so many conversations a day. And so I needed to keep hiring people. And I found myself hitting up against like the ceiling of good and great seemed to be out of reach because I was dealing with managing and hiring and turnover, all of this just to talk to leads coming inbound. And I was already on a track and I wanted, I was already going to scale this to 50 states, but I kind of had this wait, but why moment? I was like, am I going to really want to deal with this problem again and again and again and again, knowing that the hiring and the training would be the biggest bottleneck? I was like, would there be some other thing that I could build that could allow me to scale? And so I'd always been fascinated with technologies, always been fascinated with AI. And I said, I'm pretty much teaching people to follow a very advanced script at the end of the day. It's just no existing technology can do it because I knew the limitations out there. There's, there's contextual pieces of a conversation with a seller that make the biggest difference when you're on the phone with them. And so what the biggest issue I found was, was that the retention was very low and the spin-up time for people was high. But I realized if I could actually train a machine, I could train something that existed in the cloud to have a conversation on par with the training that I was giving to my virtual assistants and to my acquisition manager, not only would it be able to consistently perform at the level, but it would be able to learn a little something every time it has another conversation and would soon surpass the human level intelligence for the specific conversation. And because it'd be one brain, I wouldn't just use it for myself. I could sell it to all investors to solve this problem and it would create a network effect where it would not make sense to hire an outsourced call center, would not make sense to hire a virtual assistant. And I could provide much better quality service to the inbound leads at a fraction of the cost. That was the dream. Two and a half years ago, moved across the country to Los Angeles from Virginia to start building it. And the learning curve, you know, the mother of all learning curves later, we have it built and we've raised a serious amount of investment and we have been able to build a, a really solid team. And it's been just so much learnings on for me on all dimensions to get it to the point where now we have this thing that we're using ourselves and that dozens of investors are using and we're scaling and taking to market. So that initial idea born out of that frustration of, gosh, this is so annoying having to hire and train people for this very like simple seeming job to then building this technology and then seeing, wait a second, this technology is not just valid for a real estate investment. We could go and do this in every industry, but we're starting here because it's what I know. It's where I'm an expert and where I've got the connections. So that's how, that's how it all comes together. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, and what was your, what was your timeline on that? What was, what was the timeline from the very beginning of inception? And, and I guess maybe even from the very beginning of your real estate journey, like from the very beginning, I guess, were you wholesaling? Were you flipping? What were you doing from the very beginning? How long has it been? Yeah. So like October, 2016, I went to that seminar, right? Couple, couple years of research, listening to podcasts. Note, I was still in, still in high school and I was then I was in one year of college. I drop out of college uh, May 2nd, 2018. We do our first deal like May 20th in 2018. We do our second deal July in 2018. Our third deal like August, and then it started to scale up from there. March of 2019, so not even one year out of college, I somehow was so inspired to say, I want to go and work on this technology. I, I didn't give myself any breaks over the last couple of years. I didn't let myself coast. It was just March of 2019, like nine months after, time to go move across the country and dive into the learning curve of all learning curves of building a software company. So 
June of 2019, I actually moved to Los Angeles. October of 2019, we incorporate. No, I'm still running my real estate investment business, but it was phasing to be able to hand it off. April of 2020, I completely hand off the real estate investment business and I start raising capital for my you know, tech company here. And April 2020, we basically do research and development for the whole of 2020, file a provisional patent in September of 2020, do more research and development for the next year, but we're actually starting to gear it towards it crystallizing into an actual product, starting to become actually useful, taking it from the whiteboard ideas, taking it from conversations to whiteboard to code to actually having conversations with people in the, the real world automatically. Last September 2021, we said, hey, this technology, we've built what we need to. Now it's time to build the car around the engine, if you will. So we file our utility patent and then we start our beta testing with actual users in November, complete our beta testing in March of this year, do a couple more months of iterating and building on it for the features and things that we uncovered inside the beta testing, and then officially just launched around like May and June of this year. And now in July, we've just started to onboard a couple of new investors a day. So that's been the timeline. I have a couple of questions, Will. Sorry for being late. Yeah, um, all good. So around intellectual property, when you're talking about filing the provisional patents and the utility patents, you know, I've, I've been a part of that quite a bit from a software standpoint. Do you, you know, one of the biggest problems is, is software defensible. And then is there truly utility around, around the patent? And then disclosing the code can sometimes be worse than the mythical creature that it is and someone trying to replicate it. Tell me your thought process from not only your perspective, I'm very curious of your investor's perspective because as an investor, I usually caution against not going to file IP. Let's just go win the race of marketability and let's dominate mm -hmm. there. And if they think they can replicate it, hopefully we have enough market share where it doesn't matter. So what what was that dynamic? How'd that conversation go? Yeah, it a hundred percent. That's sort of like, do we stick our head in the sand here and not do anything and just stay in stealth or do we build it? And what I was advised to do is I, I was advised to look at the prior art landscape. I was advised to look at what have people built? What are people laying claim to? Essentially, think of a town, right? Plots of real estate are claimed and owned in the intellectual property space is very similar. And for the reason why I started this company, why, why I actually had to build this technology yourself was because it seemed like everybody else in the space including your Googles, including your Facebooks, including your Amazons, crazy enough as it sounds, seem to be building planes, adding more propellers to it, trying to get to the moon. They're not building rocket ships. They're because the people who are in charge of these programs have been around for a long time. And with what makes our technology work is some new developments in the AI machine learning space that have come out. And so when we looked at that, we said, look, if it's not gonna be that hard to reverse engineer, how we do it because we're just bringing a human conversation aspect and then teaching the machine to learn from the human rather than the other way around. And so right now you have the equivalent of models, algorithms that are like learning from 20% of the internet. That's like having a baby listen to 50,000 hours of radio. It's not going to be able to comprehend it because they're using the same models that you're using in say computer vision and self-driving cars because those are the models that have been proven to work. However, the core constraint is that words don't have inherent meaning, is my opinion, is my belief, but the meaning of words comes in from the surrounding context in the environment. 
And because nobody was even thinking about that, there was no one even talking about that. We said, look, we need to protect as much of this as possible because once there's this paradigm shift and people see that we're doing it, like I said, somebody else can come in and even file a patent after us and lock us out. And there's a lot of people that have a lot more money and a lot more resources. They've just been going down this road. As soon as they course correct, when we prove it out, we want to have at least as much protection as we possibly can. And that was the, the ending thesis. It's still, let's see here, the timelines for it's usually about two years. Um, we got it expedited through like international filing. And now it's coming up on like eight months since the utility patent was actually filed. So it's, it's, we have not yet heard back from the patent office, which is normal on the timeline. Did you reveal the code? Did you have to reveal it? The actual, you know, for, for the standpoint here, it, the, the code, no, but the diagrams and all the logic, yes, as with any, any patents. You're, right. getting, you're giving away the recipe, but you get ownership to that recipe. Right. Well, and really, it's only as good as its defensibility. You know, that's, that's the problem, right, is that now you get to go fight some big gorilla that, you know, has a billion dollars. But I, I'm not yeah. – I, I was just curious on how you navigated those waters because it's very – it's a huge decision for any software company is do we go file the patent? Do we want to fight? You know, how do we, how do we do this? So uh, what kind yeah. of tractions have you had? I mean, what, what kind of uh, numbers have you pumped through it? How many people do you have signed up? Yeah. So now I believe we've got 30 active investors who are generating and qualifying like over a dozen leads per week. So we're qualifying over a dozen leads per week. So a couple hundred conversations. Now we've qualified a couple thousand and most of it so far up until, like I said, a couple of weeks ago has just been people in my network, people in my circle. Now we're actually going directly to investors, calling them up. We're actually going into the masterminds, having pretty big shot people trialing it, using it and getting it out. So you're, people are going to hear a lot more about it in the next couple of months. We just wanted to make sure it was at the, our standards before we fully released it and, and blew it up. So that's, that's the traction that we're at now, but we're onboarding one or two new people a day now that we've really got the marketing coming. So from a go-to-market strategy, are you doing a product-led strategy or are you doing a sales-led strategy? How are you bringing the product to the market? Yeah, so when we were thinking about this as well, which, you know, we're touching on a couple of the, the points that's like, hey, as a wholesaler, you know, for me as a draw, college dropout, these have all been new things. And so I've consulted wow. my network. I was like, how, does our, how do the people in this space think? And we realized most investors have a mentor, right? Most investors look to somebody else to recommend them to do things. And so we said, why don't we go to these mentorship programs? And then why don't we have them appoint one of their members to test us out, to get the case study, to get the testimony, which we're like doing like for four different people simultaneously now who are generating a ton of traffic. And then, you know, to take their testimonial and then roll it out to their whole network. So yeah. that's now, whether that's product or sales, I, yeah. I guess it would come down to your definition of what the strategy is, right? But right. yes, with the product, you know, it's a, we're having people actually see the results for it and then speak to the results that they got to then share it with others. So to back up a few steps, I'm curious, like from a data architecture standpoint, how did you learn all this? Where did you go to, to you know, I mean, how did you data dump all this stuff into your mind? Because there's a lot to this. I know you're making it sound really easy, um, but you know, there's a lot of people going to listen to this and go like, yeah, it's not that simple. I mean, I've read a lot of books and I've done a lot of stuff um, and, and yeah. I've done some coding and software is not, you know, simple as, as what you're making it seem. I'm not doubting you or telling you you're not doing it the right way, but it, it's funny. It's just to hear you. It's like, oh, it sounds really simple, but it's not. So how'd you do it? Yeah, uh, indeed. And LinkedIn recruiting. Oh, okay. 
I, I hired people that had a proven track record in doing it. Yeah. I did not learn. I'm not an active engineer. I'm not an active coder. That's not my strength. Yeah. My strength is, is the other side of the coin, which is knowing, hey, what should this product do? What does good look like? What does great look like? What does exceptional on a, on a per like conversational unit? So yeah, yeah. I, I won't even pretend to know exactly how everything's architected beyond that of whiteboard diagrams that my engineers give me, but that's where there's trust. And I mean, I've got some people with me that have been with me since the very beginning, you know, that are, that are headstrong and believe in that we can take this technology and go change the way that customer service is done. We can change the world with it because it's such a painful problem that, yeah, it was not even a learning curve I got started on. So I hired people that had experience building engineering teams, hired people that built super complex platforms and plug it all together. And then it was a conversation and I was yeah. the product side of it, not the development. Got it, got it. That's awesome, that's awesome. I was gonna show you my book on product-like growth. So I'm going through that right now. How do you wanna to go to market? Right on, yeah, what, what product are you bringing to market? Oh, it's a SaaS-based product for, I'm in construction. So um, we do like fire protection and stuff like that. And uh, so sprinklers, alarms, it's all commercial based. But, um, you know, just trying to understand, do you want to do sales-led or product-led? And then, but it really gives you down that deep rabbit hole of like understanding how these decisions are made. I'm, I'm curious how you decided on a pricing structure. You know, if you're structuring like a SaaS-based model, there's, you know, umpteen million case studies on like, how do you price this thing? versus value that your customer gets and and how do you aggregate it to where you don't want to slow their usage down right if i'm going to charge you by every text message well then jake's not going to send a whole lot of text messages right so it's like how did you what all mm -hmm. rabbit holes did you go down and then what did you ultimately decide on yeah i think it's i think pricing is like the other side of the coin of product market fit and product market fit is exactly that right Product market fit is uh, walking on hot pavement makes my feet hurt. So I buy a pair of shoes and it makes my feet not hurt, right? That's a solve. Wearing gloves or wearing a hat is not going to solve that problem. And so understanding, okay, who is this product really for? Who is it not for? Then through iteration and testing and having just a lot of conversations, we found that the best way to price it would be for right now, a fixed monthly price. And to gear it, we don't even do trials with people who aren't generating enough inbound traffic to even see the results for it because we've learned, hey, this is who it's for. This is who it's not for. This isn't for the you know, entry level real estate investors trying to get leads. Right. We're not a traffic generator, if you will. We are a super intelligent virtual assistant that responds to people with the fastest speed to lead in the industry five seconds and can plug into all inbound marketing channels. So we really, when we looked at the bar, it's people really doing about three to four deals per month minimum, spending between probably five and $15,000 per month on advertising. That's the minimum target market. If they're bigger than that, they get even more value. And we looked at for that, we looked at what revenue generating and we looked at what's their current cost and what's the opportunity cost right now of not having a solution. And the cost is they have to pay thousands of dollars per month to have virtual assistance. And the opportunity cost is they're letting leads, leads slip through the cracks, which is costing them dozens of thousands of dollars per month. And we looked at that and we said, it probably makes sense to charge ultimately on a per lead qualified basis, right? To scale up and scale down. But at the beginning, we're launching, we're like, we want to make this a no brainer for people. We want them to be able to plug it in. And so I think our pricing is like 300 bucks per month right now. And it's open to anybody, but if you're not generating enough inbound traffic, they're not going to see the value. And so that's why we don't have like a lower price point because it's like, if you hired me for 99 bucks a month to qualify inbound leads, 
but you're not generating inbound leads, it, I would be sitting there twiddling my thumbs all day. And so that's how we sort of zone into that product market fit and got feedback from people on, hey, what works, what doesn't work compared to other answering services compared to the cost of the VA. And they can actually see it through the you know free, free trial that we give everybody. That's how we landed to the pricing that we do. That's awesome. That makes sense. That's uh, lots of discovery. Yeah. So yeah. on the on the the pricing structure, um, I basically you said something about you know you pay. Eventually, you're going to get to the pay per qualified lead. Is that because you're basically saying, hey, let us perform, let us perform for you, and then you can pay us type thing. Where where somebody like like let's say a, an SEO or or a marketing agency will say, hey, we're either going to charge you fifteen hundred dollars a month or I want a portion of your sales kind of kind of thing where I have skin in the game. That way we perform for you. Is that kind of what your thinking is or, or how, how are y'all thinking that way? Yeah. I mean, I love to, I love to, I love to capture value where value gets created. Right. I love to have a lion item on a HUD for say 5% of every deal. However, do I want to have the oversight of hundreds of investors? Do I want to, you know, how, how would we enforce that? And is that a sustainable business model for us to enforce or for people to manage? Is that the best way to go about it? Plus, if somebody's, we're, get, we're qualifying leads for them, but they're not closing those deals, right? Or whatever. It, it's just, we want to, we want to meet them where we're adding value for them, which is that that initial qualification. And so, like I said, right now we're offering unlimited qualifications to people that sign up. Why we're going to the per lead is if somebody's qualifying a hundred, a thousand leads per month versus a hundred, right? We are generating more value for the person who's doing a thousand rather than the person who's doing a hundred. And so where right. my goal has always been leave as much money on the table as possible, right? Create massive surplus value. However, to, to what end, right? We want, we want it, well, this is still a business, right? We have costs and if we want to scale and continue to improve the product, we need to finance that somehow. We need to show investors, hey, this is, this is the product market fit. So it's really just capturing the a small percentage of value while leaving a value surplus on the table for every customer that uses us as no matter what size that they are, as long as they're at the minimum. That yeah, I was gonna, my thought was is to give them like say a 60 day trial saying, well, let's say it's 300 bucks a month. And then, because I think the surplus of value that you're providing, you know, assuming that it works, I was having used it, is so massive that you could really charge per user. I mean, you could get some serious money, thousands of dollars a month, you know, because um, yeah. they land a couple of deals through this thing and they, they realize that they're, they're passively landing deals now, right? They're not having to actively go and search and do this. You know, as soon as, if you give them a 60 day trial of say 300 bucks a month, it's like, oh yeah, now it's five grand. I mean, it would work, right? If it's working, it's working. A hundred percent. And and really what that comes down to is, is yes, I want to, I want to be, I want to, uh, and this is how I approach every conversation, right? Is value first, right? Show them, yeah. get people to say, Hey, I can't live without this. And I don't want to go back to hiring and managing people who will show up on zoom sometimes halfway around the world who don't speak clear English and who sometimes who manage to forget what I tell them to do every single day. And that if I want to scale, I have to hire more of them. And now I need to hire them to manage themselves. <laughs> I, I, it's just like, it's a, it's a mess. So 100% from that standpoint of it, we're like, we want to just have the best possible qualification conversations so they can see the conversion increase and reclaim their time. Because basically the pitch is, look, 
you know, I talk to people who are doing two, bringing in 250 leads per week. We're actually onboarding one in like 20 minutes and one of the big like national PPC guys. And I'm like, how much time do you think your acquisition managers spend chasing after people, trying to get them on the phone only to then have the conversation and realize that there's no motivation at all and they're never going to transact with you. And now he said probably about 60%. I said, well, what if we can cut that in half? Well, what does cutting that in half look like? Well, there's a trade-off because he has everybody fill out a form on his site. that gets their address, name, and contact information, right? But if you start adding more questions to that, people drop off. They're not going to fill out the form. Right. So there's a trade-off, right? Our technology sort of bridges the gap where rather than that, they can actually have a live chat or text and have a live chat where it's an engaging conversation that answers those questions, handles their objections. And we gather that information and we get even better responses than if you were to ask those same questions on a form. And we also increase top of funnel response rates and conversions. And now his team knows exactly, okay, this person, you know, let's, I'll just use you too. Jake has got a property, you know, he's looking to sell in 14 days because he's about to be foreclosed on. Sorry, Jake. And, you know, but the, the property needs a ton of rehab and he's looking for 150,000, right? And in the same neighborhood, say Robert comes in, he says, hey, I want, you know, happy to sell in the next six months if the offer is right. My timeline, no rush. Property's in pristine condition. We just remodeled the bathroom a couple months ago and I want market value. At a glance now, which, which person is the acquisition manager going to go have a conversation with? Which, who per, which person actually has a problem to solve? Okay. That transparency was not available before. That's what we offer. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because you're, you're qualifying them based on your questions and you're going straight, straight to the problem. And, uh, and trying to solve it. Yeah, and the acquisition manager gets with one link to actually see the real-time transcript that was had. They're not just trying to, you know, figure out the, you know, what people mean by cryptic form, short, like one or two word answers, but they can actually see exactly how people engaged with it naturally. And they can read between the lines, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. How do you, how do you see this um, even going beyond the real estate market? How do you see this changing the way business is done beyond that? Yeah. So right now, if I want to, let's say I was able to book a flight online, right? I was just at a wedding for one of my cousins last weekend and they canceled the flight and they delayed it. They said, please call a rebook. Right. And I called and I got somebody on the phone within two minutes. Nice thing is that used to take 30 minutes an hour, but how did I get somebody on the phone to respond to me in two minutes? What did the company have to do? You got me. They had to hire an army of people on standby ready to take my call. Oh, and they had to train all those people, not just on how to use the technology, but how to have conversations and specific policies, right? It's an extreme expense. It's like upwards of 10 to 15% for most of the Fortune 100 companies, their call centers and all the customer support and customer success only to give okay service, right? That's a great scenario is I get somebody on the phone. How about all the times, especially over the pandemic, that have wait on hold for an hour, like most people, and that then you get transferred and hung up on. Imagine if I could just call in and say, hey, this is my flight number. It got canceled. I need to reschedule. What are the available times? And immediately it could say, okay, here's the times that's available. Let's authenticate you. We'll send you a code to your phone and you could transact and communicate with the representative and the company instantaneously, right? And so it's a perfectly smooth experience for the customer every time. That's what we want. 
That's why our motto is the world's smoothest customer experience. We're not looking to necessarily be flattered or have small talk when we're talking to customer service. We just want to do the thing. We want to right or wrong. We want to fix the problem. And that's why we're calling customer service. On the other hand, though, the company is spelling, spending upwards of billions of dollars per year per company to manage call center staffs of 50 to 100,000 people. Now, why is it so expensive? Well, one of the biggest reasons, and this goes back to what I learned about real estate investment, is that 40% of the workforce quits every single year. It's a 40% turnover rate. And so they are trapped because they have so many people calling in that they know exactly how many people we need to staff because they need to minimize their wait times. But every single year, they lose almost half of the people that they have working for them. And then the new people need to come in that need to be hired, trained, managed. They need benefits. They need to be paid, all of that. And so from the standpoint of us being able to provide a much lower fraction of the cost solution to provide a perfectly exceptional experience every single time and give the company more real-time feedback of how are the conversation, you know, what, what issues are customers having in real time, that's, that's the use case. And that's not just in airlines, but that's in healthcare and insurance and banking and credit cards and all of these industries that are just a pain in the ass right now. Right. Absolutely. I mean, like from a, I'm watching your, uh, I'm watching your website. I was just looking it up to see what it looked like, but what's y'all's biggest problem right now? I mean, what, what, what are your target market? What are you trying to do with the business right now? Yeah. Pushing a boulder over a hill, right? We're like, we're like coming up on the crest of it because you, it's a very, very high barrier to entry to build a technology like this that can naturally engage with people. Chatbots can't do it. And right. there's like, if it's not at this bar, let's say we're here, it's actually negative value for customers, no matter, even if we gave it away for free. And so you have to sort of enter here, which is why we did so much testing, which is why we've done so much training to it. Once we get it here, now we're putting in the hands of people that know everybody else. So it's like, there's no more, there's no more room to hide. I've seen dozens of conversations being qualified every day. It's up to that standard. It's just about getting our foot in the door with those people to then have them share it with the people that they know. And very quickly, now people will share it with each other because, hey, there's a proven use case. The goal for us has been, you know, getting those first people, instilling enough trust, getting the connections to those people to try it, to use it. That has been the biggest use case, like the biggest bottleneck, if you will. What What do you, what's your measurement or your metric for success? How many people do you think would deem successful if you had them, you know, using your technology in real estate specifically? So like what sort of, if just so I understand people? the question, yeah, yeah like, like 10, what market like 10, penetration? 10,000 real estate agents, 100,000 real estate agents, or yeah, how many, you know, wholesalers do you, what is your target? You know, because you don't want to be too saturated, right? Like we can't have 30 people in one zip code using this or it's going to be a problem, right? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, maybe. Um, our goal is 1,000. And because we're an inbound tool, it's not like we're an outbound text blast or an outbound call blast, right? Where the more right. people that use it, or it's not like we're a special data company where the more people that use that data, right? Investors are always going to have to figure out their own marketing and because it's constantly changing landscape. They're generating the marketing, right? If, so, if everybody in the space uses it, that just means now the quality, the standard has been increased for every single person. And so it doesn't necessarily, it only hurts another investor if they're not able to give an instant response, which is incentivizes people to sign up with us, right? But it's not like if one person, if you go to one site and you have a perfect experience and you get all the information, you have a great conversation, and then you go to another site and you have the same thing, 
and then you're another site and you don't, you fill out a form and you never hear back from them, right? Those first two investors now have a competitive advantage, an unfair advantage compared to the third person is because they're using our technology. And so for that, looking at all the houses, again, looking at the minimums for like, where does this even start to make sense for people? About a thousand. And when we get to retail and real estate agents, probably 50 to a hundred thousand by licensing it to the brokerages like Keller Williams, like Remax, like Compass, people that have, you know, sort of attempted to build things like this. And I don't know all the details, right. But for some reason, you know, agents aren't using them today because they just haven't been able to meet that bar because I know how they've been constructed. And it took us two and a half years and $2 million to develop this technology. So that is your ultimate play is you're going to try and license it to EXP or Keller Williams or someone like that. Yep. Yeah. Right. On. Is it, does it truly respond as fast as this thing shows on the internet? Or is it, so, does it take a little bit longer? Because you want it to be more realistic. Like it's sending paragraphs in a matter of like fractions of a second. Yeah, that's probably because that's just like the, the demo for it. Well, we right. actually slow it down to the okay. average typing speed per word. And that's then awesome. we calculate that and figure out what's the response. So yeah, we, we always get that feedback. It's like, yeah, we, we make it supernatural for people on the site and over text. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I think Robert, because um, I was on I was on one of the demos with them, and and you were you were wondering if like thirty people are using the same thing in call station. Say that wouldn't make sense if you go to PropStream, pull a list, write letters, and send everything to every single different person, right? Because they're all getting the same thing. It's all the same list. But what he's saying is, I mean, you, you can still do that, but he'll send the letters, you know, and they they see the handwritten note they see the qr code or, or the website or whatever to go you know go do it or text that number whatever and then you text that number majority of it he's just he's just bridging a gap from okay when i text these people you know are they going to respond or are they not or you know then they qualify them and then it's you know to the lead so it's, it's speeding up that process from when that letter hits to qualifying that lead where which is the you know, which is the biggest problem in, in everything. Cause you, I'll send 55 letters out tomorrow and I might get one call and he might not even care, you know? So, um, there's, I guess, like you said, a massive waste. And so I guess if, if you have a system that just carries them all and, uh, and gets rid of the, the waste immediately, I mean, it's a lot more streamlined and you can also send a hell of a lot more and, and go through a lot more because you have a system that goes through it faster. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So how are y'all marketing currently? I mean, how are you uh, sourcing guys? I know you, you mentioned y'all are going to the meetups and things like that. Um, are you geographically trying to concentrate, like just working in California? Or are you all across the country or how are you scraping? Yeah. So we actually pulled a list of every single person in every state that has like every real estate investor in every state and every metropolitan area that has a population of greater than 200,000. I went through Google, we buy houses and someone else fast. And we built that whole list. And we're going directly to them, having a conversation. Response rate's been awesome. Customer acquisition costs super low. I actually have a couple outbound VAs calling people, given two lines and investors like, yeah, that solves a problem that I don't currently have a solution to. Let me see a demo. And so we're booking like four to six demos a day. Um, of that, in addition to it, we don't really reach the people that use live answering services, right? Because we don't really get through to the decision maker. And so masterminds and coming into masterminds with testimonials of some of the biggest players each mastermind such that it's an undisputed it's not a question anymore this person's putting their reputation online through the affiliate agreement they're using it first 
it, it then will spread like wildfire. Right. Those are just a bit of longer sales cycles. That and then podcasts as well to educate, to share people a little bit more about, about the backstory because there's not a whole lot of disruption in real estate, you know? And so whenever there's something new, the first thing we get is, hey, people are skeptical. Once they try it out, once they see it and they have conversations for themselves, and then even better, they plug this into mail and they see that we've actually specifically trained this to have conversations with motivated sellers. Now, rather than getting a missed call, right, and having to call back and chase that lead, now they get a fully qualified lead plugged right into their simply their, you know, investor fuse, their Podio, whatever CRM they have, and they get it and they stick with us forever. So retention is extremely high of people who are generating significant amount of traffic. So like, look, this is, this is the less expensive solution and it's streamlining and increasing your conversions pretty much day one. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I think he's. I think he's right about going on masterminds because, like, and you were you were MDM, right? You know, watching Suman, um, in that in that group, you know, whatever Suman posts, everybody's all over it, right? So Suman was going there and post something about Titan, right? Or if he says, "Hey, I'm I'm investing in this, maybe you should think about it." There's going to be two hundred under the comments going straight to it, and just just I mean not blindly going and maybe a quarter of them actually do it. But I mean, like you've got, you've got mobs of people who, you know, like, and trust, they know, like, and trust Stuman. And so if they know, like, and trust Stuman, well, now they all already like Titan because he endorses it. Right. Yeah. And uh, I guess that goes back to like celebrities endorsing Nike or Gatorade or whatever. Happened, 100%. You know? Wait, who's this, who's this Stuman guy? What's his name? Do you got his right. number? <laughs> Yeah. Ryan Stuman, I can, I could, uh, I could, I could hook you up with his right hand man for sure. Let's do it, a hundred percent, because that's exactly it. And, and you know, for them, the benefit is look, they've already built these these relationships, right? They've already built the credibility. All they've got to do is plug it in, see the results for it, and then the, then there's you know affiliate revenue coming in to them as well for just being the one to you know carry the torch and bring it to their people, right? So I, I got one other thing in terms of like what you're saying, like, hey, what's our bottleneck, right? It's pushing the build boulder over the hill. We got a couple of these people going. Obviously, we want as, as many as possible, right? We want to put this to all, all corners because, again, the more conversations we have, it gets even better every single time. Every single day, we're adding new variations of responses that we've never seen before. But it's getting less and less is uh, funding. Right, right on, right into, right on the other side of the coin of me not knowing what it takes, like mathematically or the amount of work or the amount of complexity to it right there is the actual funding required and in classic first-time founder right did not raise nearly enough capital to be able to actually pull this off but now that we've got the traction and stuff it's like for it it's kind of an interesting place i find ourselves in because we built it and we're showing that hey we're consistently onboarding people but because we just launched we're not the revenue yet and with like private market valuations and appetite crashing it's created kind of like a perfect storm to put us in a tight spot kind of like between a rock and a hard place here as we're gaining the most success and traction we've ever seen. Right. So are you, are you raising a series a round or what are you, where are you at? Yeah. So we're raising a, a seed round here of about 400,000. You know, I, I'm super public with all my info. I, I really don't care. Our burn rates like 45,000 and the products already been, been built and we're scaling up and adding between like 300 and $700 in monthly recurring revenue every single day. It's just, yeah, I expected that we would be able to catch a little bit sooner, but I wasn't smart enough to go after the big players, these masterminds at the beginning. I was going after small people, created awesome results, but their case studies didn't really have a lot of pull. 
in the industry. And so, yeah, we're raising, we're raising 400,000 in a seed round to, to give us the runway to get to profitability and beyond. What's the valuation cap and discount? Yeah. So how we've done this is on a safe so far. And right now we have it pinned at a valuation cap of 12.5 million. Any discount? Um, we, we don't have a discount on it. No one's really asked for it. Just if, if they wanted to, we've kept, we've raised all the money we've raised so far on safes with just the valuation cap to keep it simple. I'd be open to a conversation about that. But when they look at it and they see where this company is going, a discount is, you know, the, the cap is going to be the lower of the figures rather than 20% discount of say, you know, 30 million. What were your past two um, raises? What was the valuation cap on them? Yeah, 7.5 and then five. Okay. So this is, yeah. these are down rounds. These are up. Yep. And this is like those, those raises were before we had any sort of attraction, any revenue, any, any customers. Did, I'm asking you a bunch of questions. Did previous investors, what was the, you know, if you were to take a percent of aggregate and say that, you know, the first was 10 investors, how many times did they reinvest and, and have they re-upped on this last round? Yeah. So got about probably two dozen investors in that first like 5 million round friends, family, people in my network, right? Real estate investors. And then I got a group of angels who probably put in the other like million at that, like, you know, 7.5 ish. And from the standpoint, they're like, Hey, look, you know, public market valuations have, have gone much lower. We want to see more commercial viability. I'm like, we're, we're getting there. We're onboarding people every single day. And so I'm about to now engage them again. Now that we have this predictable metrics and a predictable path to profitability because the appetite from that and like the other investments I have, they say, well, look, we believe in what you're building. You just got to show user growth. And so now that's what we're doing too. So I'm very, I'm about to go re-engage them now that we've got the traction that's going to make the difference. What do you think by year end your MRR will be? You know, I'm signing super affiliate agreements with some of the people in the space who know everyone else in the space and it's incentivizing them on cash and equity on like 50K, 100K, 150K, 200K milestones for people that they bring in. My goal is to get to at a minimum, like 150,000 in MRR. At, by the end of this year? By the end of this year. Yeah, that's about, that's about 500 users. And the reason for that is it's extremely frictionless to sign up. It's it does not, there's not, it doesn't take months for people to see the value for it. They plug it into their site. They can start seeing the value on day one. It's just about the way we're going to get there. It's not by going off one-off investors, but having these masterminds click and people sharing it and people endorsing it, as well as creating white label solutions with some of the masterminds that have hundreds, if not thousands of people in them already doing that volume. I'm a part of an angel group that I think we could easily raise that money. It's not, I don't, with that kind of recurring revenue on MRR, I mean, well, I'll hit you up after this and see if I can't get you in front of them. Right. This is like a live Shark Tank episode. This is great. I hope exactly everyone that's listening was. to this has been getting some, some good, good insight. And I, I did not expect it to go this way, but yeah, a hundred percent. Cause we've got the data, we've got the traction to back it now. It's just like, like I said, I try to raise as minimal amount as possible because I wanted to minimize dilution, you know, throughout this, but it's put us in a, in a tight spot here. We're at one hand, we're like, you know, getting more traction, getting, you know, partnerships with better people than we've ever had before. On the other hand, I'm like, yeah, we didn't raise enough money. This isn't, this is, uh, this is going to be tight. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Well, cool. I'm done beating you up. Jay. Oh, it's good. It's good fun. <laughs> It's all good. I think I think Will said he, he's got a he's got to onboard a big client at one. So 
we'll we'll wrap it up. But man, I appreciate you coming on and and uh, even though Robert grilled you a little bit, I think it was good. I think uh, I think it'll you know it's it's good to to uh, I guess answer under pressure and and uh, that was a cool little a cool little Shark Tank deal. Yeah, and it's a cool product. I think it's you know going back to the technology side of it. Making I've been in the room where many people make bold claims about AI and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I've seen guys just rip them to absolute shreds um, because I think a lot of people make these claims, you know, because mm-hmm. it sounds cool, right? It's catchy. It's new. But whenever you're dealing with real technology guys, you better have your stuff together. You know what I mean? And so looking at the product and watching it and understanding what you are trying to do, it's a it's a unique opportunity. And I think my last question would be on the in terms of the IP, the company structure from an angel investment standpoint. You know, when you look at doing this outside of real estate, is this investment getting bought into the IP and the technology, or is it just the version of it in real estate, or is it the holistic version of it across the board? Yeah, it's the whole company. It's shares of, you know, that's why we call it Titan X. Titan it stands for Titan Experiences. You know, Claire is just the first product, and Claire stands for Continuous Learning Artificial Intelligence for Real Estate. This is for people buying it now for, for taking a bet on me. It's not just for this one. It's for everything we do over the next decade yeah, and beyond. Cool. Well, it's 1258. Will, I appreciate your time, man. I'll, uh, I'll reach out to you. And, and uh, really cool. Are you possibly going to Atlanta or any of the events coming up and go bundle? Yeah. Yeah. Planning on it. Awesome. I booked my flight yesterday, so I'll see you in Atlanta. Awesome. All right. right. Well, thank you guys. It's a pleasure. Definitely unexpected, but for anybody, anybody listening, if you want to, you mind if I I plug and find somebody got something out of this conversation? Shameless, selfless (laughs) over here, right? Um, No, titanx.ai is our site, or shoot me an email at william at titanx.ai. That's T-I-T-A-N-X.ai. You can see what Robert's been looking at this conversation, see the skills Claire's got, schedule a demo, see it for yourself. We'll love the chat. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Bye. We appreciate you guys coming on here. Um, That was quite a, a, uh, it was quite a talk. It was a little, a little uh, shark tank, little mini episode. Um, Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Hopefully you got some, some value out of it. I know you did. I know you learned a bunch. Maybe you got to go back and listen to it three or four or five times, but uh, you heard the man. Titan X and uh, William at TitanX.com. Give him a shout and uh, we'll be seeing how it turns out. And uh, thank you for listening to Capital Gains. Appreciate you guys. They say I'm showing out. They say I should be ashamed. Hey. I don't do it for the clout. Bitch, I do it for the game. Hey. You can walk in any trap and I bet they know my name. Yeah. Frank Matthews of the South put me in the Hall of Fame. Fine, 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 fine. Added to my bank account, 